This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Stand by, 15 seconds to air. Stand by, old camera, and videotape. Ready with your opening graphics. Stand by, Howard. Here we come, Frank. Ready, Don. Stand by, audio, your opening music, and roll tape. Take tape. Celebrating 150 years of college football. I wrote a poem. I wish they could see the real person in me. Because one day they would know that I'm not just here for the show. When I was little in grade school, there was so much going on inside of me, having a speech impediment, being bullied as a little kid. I remember the kid that beat me up in eighth grade. I'm glad he did that because he didn't just beat me up, he woke me up. I started doing push-ups and sit-ups after that, after that last beating he gave me. I became very, very competitive. Winning was everything. Oh, I didn't like football. I tried to talk him out of it several times. You tried to talk Herschel out of yeah, I playing did. football. Yes. I was ready to hurt someone. I, <laughs> I, I didn't want him to get hurt or either hurt nobody else's child. I had so much anger and shame and pain that I put it way back here and I didn't deal with it. I don't mean to break your will, but if your will is going to be broken, I'm sorry for it. But it ain't you, it's me.
Wrightsville, Georgia. Its population was roughly 2,500 in 1979, a year when college football coaches came in from all over to the small town, each hoping to convince a 17-year-old phenom to play for their team. We used to put up signs, you know, on the city limits, home of Herschel Walker, somebody steal them, you know, so they quit putting them up. It was a farming community. There were a few small factories. I watched people work so hard, and I hardly ever saw anybody complain about stuff. My parents, I watched them go to work every day. Not once did I ever see them say, oh, no, I'm not doing it today. And that was something I told college coaches. If you go in and you talk about signing contracts and being a great pro player, you lose his parents because they're gonna want you to talk about what kind of education can he get if he comes to your school. The way to move on from this little town and not have to come back and work in the farm or work in the mill is get an education. College coaches were in your school all the time. They were on your practice field. People would show up on their doorstep in the middle of the night and say, I found your house, I want to talk to Herschel. He was a very easygoing kid. But there were instances where you could see he just had enough. We had a team his senior year and they really went after him and they hit late. I saw him get up in a hurry. Usually he just get up, give the referee the ball, and go back to the huddle. But he got up differently. One of the assistants said, we need to get him out of the game. He's about to lose it. And I said, no, we're giving him the football. He proceeded to take over the game and punish both offensively and defensively the people he was playing against. When I was 16 years old, my mom gave me this old, old Bible. I carried it today in my bag. It's in a plastic bag. Boy, she said, uh, Herschel, if you got Jesus with you, you would never be alone. When he first got there, he was just a regular guy, even hitting him in practice. My first year of college, you know, this is a totally different level. I'm going to be a little awkward because I'm trying to learn it and I'm thinking too much and I'm not reacting. He didn't dazzle anybody with anything spectacular. And knowing that we were a run-first offense, as I looked around, I mean, we had pieces at, at pretty much every other place. Running back was really the only spot where we were saying, do we have a guy there? Despite the inevitable concerns, like every season before it, hope sprung eternal for Georgia and every team across the SEC in September 1980. And the Bulldogs' schedule opened with a visit to Knoxville to play the Tennessee Vols, an immediate test of just how big their expectations should be. We're playing a good ball game, we're just not getting any breaks. 
was pretty obvious. Things had not gone well in the first half. The Bulldogs were down 15 to two in the third quarter. Their prospects looking bleak. Herschel did not deserve to start the ball game, but these other two running backs had two series apiece. Mike Cabin, the running backs coach at Georgia, says, we got to put this guy in the game. We hand it off to Herschel. There's a hole. Five, 10, 12. He's running over people. Everybody remembers the image of him scoring his first touchdown for Georgia by running over, literally running over Bill Bates. Oh God almighty, he ran right through two men. Which is tough to watch from the Bill Bates side of things, uh, getting trucked like that. And I think the whole team started believing then. Wait a minute, we can play. Penalty crashing off one side, he pitches to Herschel, gonna get him out 10, eight, seven, five, Herschel, Herschel Georgia wins the game 16 to 15, and they're off and running. Tonight, you confirmed what yeah. I thought. Yes, yes. All right. All right. Well, you're right. shaking my ass there. <laughs> <laughs> The next game they played at home against Texas A&M, Herschel Walker breaks off a bunch of long runs. Then I talked to Buck Ballou. He said, we're standing around looking at ourselves going, oh my goodness, what have we got here? You know, it was just that rare combination of, uh, of power and speed. There was Earl Campbell. A uh, big rugged running back out of Texas. You had Tony Dorsett, the little scat back out of Pitt. But this is sort of a combination of the two. A star had been born in Georgia. But it was Alabama and Paul Bear Bryant who were perched firmly atop the Southeastern Conference and the college football world at large. Next comes wide of the line. Coach Bryant's team started 1980, 5-0. Ranked number one, heading into a matchup at arch-rival Tennessee. We used to meet on Wednesday nights, uh, and he would get up and talk. And this, uh, I'll remember this, this speech uh, for the rest of my life. He started talking to the black players on the team, and he was relating to being poor, knowing what it's like to be poor. We're talking about overcoming, overcoming obstacles in life, and from there to how bad he wanted to beat Tennessee. And he became very emotional, like we've never seen him before to the point where tears started coming out of his eyes. The atmosphere in the room was, man, we're gonna play right now, coach. You know, <laughs> we don't need any gear. We go right out here in the parking lot and play the game. And that's where he had us. We felt like we won that game that night. Tennessee never looked to have a chance. If they can get inside the two, and it's touchdown, Coley! The tide rolled 27-0. The game is over, 
and Paul Bryant has won his 302nd career victory. No matter how much success he had, he never forgot how poor he was. He always remembered what it was like to be on the outside looking in. He always was still that poor guy from Morro Bottom, Arkansas. But two weeks later, it all came to a crashing halt when the six and two Mississippi State Bulldogs shocked the tide. Their defense was just unbelievable. Long snapped out, goes to the fullback, fumbles, fumbles the ball, Bulldogs recover, Bulldogs recover. Alabama goes down in defeat to Mississippi State six to The loss ended a 28-game Alabama win streak that dated back to 1978. Huge moment. If you had a top five games in Mississippi history, that's certainly been one of them. After the loss, Bear Bryant went to the Bulldogs' locker room, personally congratulating the team's players, emulating the gesture he'd first learned from Bud Wilkinson almost 30 years earlier, when Bryant's Kentucky team had upset number one Oklahoma. Some of us went down and stood by the Alabama bus as it drove off and waved at the bear. And he waved back at us. The bear waved back at us. That same afternoon, number four Georgia was hosting South Carolina. In a game billed as a matchup of star running backs, George Rogers and Herschel Walker. Malou gives the ball to Herschel Walker. Walker finds a hole on the right side. He's outside, and he may be gone. Touchdown, Georgia. I think the game that I may say that I got up for that I was really prepared for was Florida game. Playing in a neutral stadium, Jacksonville. I go to class on a Friday, but hardly any students are there because everybody going to Florida. It's like a bowl game in the middle of the season. Wide receiver Lindsey Scott was my uh, road roommate, and we had a conversation the night before the Florida game where he was just voicing his frustration. Uh, hadn't found the end zone all season long, how frustrating it had been and I was searching for what to say, and all I could come up with was, hey man, tomorrow might be the day. Georgia at the 28-yard line, just to start the things, first quarter at the Gita Bowl in Jacksonville, as Walker sneaks to the right, hits outside, the 35, look out, he's past midfield, and he's got a blocker, cuts to the inside, Herschel Walker, there he goes again. We got off early ahead and in Florida, then went ahead of us. And first and ten from just outside the ten. And it's Jones, and he's in for the touchdown. Most of us were shocked that, hey, we're going to let this slip away? There's no way we can let this opportunity slip through our fingers. Dickert to punt. Werner's going to let it fly, and it goes out of bounds. At the eight-yard line, 
So a beauty. Florida started celebrating. I mean, it, it looked like it was all over. With a minute 35 remaining in the game. I remember on the sideline, we just got to get in field goal range. That's what we wanted was a chance. But I'm thinking if we could just get a first down. You know, at this point in time, you got to get the ball to your best wide receiver, and that's Lindsey Scott. Because it was now or never. They won't buck back third down on the eight. In trouble. Got a block behind him. Going to throw in a run. Complete to the 25. To the 30. Lindsey Scott. And he made that pivot and turned right toward the open area. My reaction was, we got it. We got the first down. Got 35, got I think we got more than a first down. And I was, uh-oh. A lens ran track as well. I said, whoever chasing him from Florida better be able to ride. I sort of felt the ground shake a little bit. I watched the game alone in a hotel room. In, uh, in Tallahassee, Florida. And when Lindsey Scott scored the miracle touchdown, I jumped out of my chair. It was one of these hanging laps, and I, and I just accidentally, I destroyed it. Absolutely destroyed it. If you want a miracle, we just got one. I can't believe it. That play, I think today, is still the greatest play in Georgia's football history. You know, this game has always been called the world's greatest cocktail party. Do you know what is going to happen here tonight? And up at St. Simon's and Jekyll Island, man, is there going to be some property destroyed tonight. They should have lost the Tennessee game, but they didn't. They should have lost the South Carolina game, but they didn't. Should have lost the Florida game, but they didn't. That team just had a will to win. You know, just a feeling an athlete just can't can't describe the elation. The next day, I'm checking out, and I, I asked for the manager. I said, I'm afraid I got a little excited. He said, wait a minute. You broke a lamp because you were pulling for Georgia to beat Florida? I said, yeah, I'm afraid I did. He said, well, I'm a Florida State guy. You don't owe me anything. <laughs> The Sugar Bowl, New Year's Day, 1981 in New Orleans. Undefeated number one Georgia, led by the freshman phenomenon Herschel Walker, going for the national championship against the fabled Fighting Irish of Notre Dame. Oh man, they come out of that tunnel and they, they look like they're gonna run forever. They had players just flowing out. And they look big. I thought, my God, we're the guy on the beach getting sand kicked in our face. Just a ball game that I knew was going to be tough. Ballou gives it on a little delay to Herschel Walker and Walker. And it got much, much tougher on the second play. And they turn, give it to Walker. Walker trying to get outside. Does get outside. Penalty flag down. Look out the for this second one. play from scrimmage in that game. Herschel dislocates his shoulder. I seen him drop his arm when he come back over. And it's like, what the hell? His arm's just hanging limp. He's gone. He's toast. He's out. And I'm like, why? He said, you know, you've dislocated your shoulder and you gotta have surgery. And just the blank stares in that huddle when he left the field, 
sort of got my attention. Uh, there were some guys thinking, okay, our best player's left, and he's probably not coming back. And I said, let me put it back. And he said, no, you can't put that back. I said, no, yes, we can. I'm standing like me to you, and our team doctor takes his arm, hops his, dislocated his shoulder in place, and I saw Herschel winch. I didn't come there to be injured. I came there to play. Goes back in the game. Ballou gives it to Walker. Herschel running inside. Goes across the 30. Moves his way to the 27. He took 34 snaps with a dislocated shoulder. I mean, I've seen guys you know, play with broken fingers, but I'm running back with a shoulder. He's getting hit every time. And to be honest with you, it hurt. You're walking almost crooked. But you're in a fight, so you're not going to worry about the little things. That was the toughest performance that I've ever been around. The entire team fed off what Herschel did that day. Got to be Walker. Touchdown. Walker. Herschel Walker would run for 150 yards with his dislocated shoulder, a heroic conclusion to his remarkable season. The game is over. The crowd. Almost. It was only Georgia's second ever national championship, the first having come way back in 1942. That, I think, was very important in that it brought a sense of kind of diversity, that the SEC is not simply about Alabama. That there are other teams now that became, begin to have same success, equal success, national success. I told you before we went out, you were the greatest group of guys as a football team that I've ever been around, and I love you. And I want to say it again, you're the greatest group of guys I've ever been around as a team, and I love Nobody really knows where War Eagle came from. Like all good legends, the source is lost in antiquity. Most people love the story about the Civil War, or as some people call it, the War of Northern Aggression. An Auburn student went to fight with General Robert E. Lee and fought the Yankees in the wilderness, one of the bloodiest battles in the whole war. When the first battle was over, there was no man's land between the two armies. Everything in that no man's land was thought to be dead. But this Auburn student was not dead. And this baby eagle was there with him. The Auburn student made his way back to Confederate lines, came back to Auburn, brought the eagle with him. He got his degree, joined the Auburn faculty, and the eagle grew and increased in wisdom and in stature. When Auburn played Georgia in 1892, the guy took the eagle on the train with him. And of course, everybody in Auburn called it War Eagle because of the circumstances under which it was found. In the game, the eagle broke away and was flying around the field. And so the Auburn people, did what you would normally do, War Eagle, War Eagle. 
They hollered War Eagle one time, and Georgia fumbled the ball, and Auburn got it and went on in to score. Ever since that day, every time two or three or four Auburn people gather together, they still say, War Eagle, War Eagle. Allegiances in the Southeastern Conference aren't typically transferable, but on occasion, a heart and soul will find a new home. You read Auburn Creed, and if it doesn't resonate with you, you better go back. You better go back and go see your preacher. <laughs> you need some help. Well, I picked that thing up, read it, and I said, "This is what I believe." The number one phrase in that to me, and it's probably not the most powerful, but it resonates with me more than any other, is it in there said, a spirit that is not afraid. Auburn hired Pat Dye, a Georgia graduate, in 1981, and there were no illusions about his first mission when he arrived on the plains. Beat Alabama, with the Tigers having lost eight straight to the Crimson Tide. I was a senior in high school, and I got invited uh, as the uh, offensive lineman of the week at the Touchdown Club in Columbus. And uh, Coach Dye was having to be the guest speaker that night. They opened up to questions, and I'll never forget some guy raised his hand and goes, how long is it going to take you to beat Alabama? Coach Dye looks at him, pauses for a second. He says, 60 minutes. Dye grew up dirt poor in rural Georgia during World War II. If you come from that kind of background, you, you, you are not worth anything in the larger world of social organization and influence in the South. You've got to break out of that world. And in the case of Bear Bryant, he broke out of it. And in the case of Pat Dye, he broke out of it. And it's no surprise that those two guys were brilliant at recruiting kids like themselves. He went on to play for the Bulldogs and later worked for Bear Bryant as an Alabama assistant in the 60s and early 70s. As a head coach, he ran brutal practices, just like Bryant, and seemed in so many ways a veritable mirror image of his mentor. I love Coach Bryant. And Coach Bryant loved me. We understood each other, both country and, you know, I used to sit in staff meetings and he'd talk about all, and he said, them country SOBs. I said, Coach, I said, ain't nobody countries me and you. And he just laughed. So the arch rival coaches were friendly, but they both knew how it worked how much one day of the year mattered all across Alabama. Coach Bryant ambles out on the field in his grandfatherly way, and Coach Dye kind of strides out, you know, young pup, cocky kind of guy, and he walks straight up to Coach Bryant, and he says, Coach, I just want you to know we're coming after your ass today. And Coach Bryant was kind of startled. What are you doing, boy, trying to scare me? No, I ain't trying to scare you. I just want you to know we ain't scared of you anymore. Second down, eight, Patrick again. But Bryant would win his 315th game in their first matchup. Paul Playa Bryant, 
The man has made Passing Amos Alonso Stagg to become the winningest college football coach in history and also beat Auburn for the ninth straight time. It was almost as if Auburn became irrelevant, you know, during our stretch in the late 70s. We expected to beat them in recruiting. We expected to beat them on the field. You know, it was Auburn, but they, there's no way they can beat us. They can't, they can't stay with us. And then both showed up. <laughs> I look down on the city of Birmingham, Alabama on a day with a temperature... A year later, Dye got his next shot. I broke my hand, I think, the Georgia game, which is a couple games before, and coaches, I figured I would sit out. They're like, no, you're going to play this game because this is what you've been waiting for. The game was tight early before Alabama seized control. Outside the roof. Touchdown. And went up by eight early in the fourth quarter. When somebody's kicking your ass for three quarters, and you're sitting there, you know, and you're thinking to yourself, you want to give up. You just want to cry and say, I'm not good enough. I'm 17. This dude is 22. I got these little baby arms and biceps. And this dude got some grown man arms over there. And I walked down to the end of the bench. I saw the defense's guys with their tongues hanging out. And then I looked up, and I saw those little shakers. A lot of orange and blue shakers. I said, these kids really believe that we're going to win here today. And I will not be the cause of Auburn University losing to Alabama. And so I just kind of started saying to myself, like, let's go to work. Let's go to work. Let's go to work. Let's go to work, Wally. Steve Wallace was just a freshman. So was a kid behind him in the backfield named Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson, working out of the tailback spot, he breaks it back. Inside the Alabama 15, out of bounds at the time, Tommy Wilcox. Nobody, nobody, including me, realized how good it was. I was an Alabama fan. I never knew where Auburn was. My junior or my senior year, a coach from Tuscaloosa came up to my house and said, Coach Bear Bryant sent me up here to talk to you, tell you that. We hope you come to Tuscaloosa. And he proceeded to say, I don't think you'll get a chance to play until the end of your sophomore or beginning of your junior season. I'm saying to myself, you got to be out of your damn mind if you think I'm going to come there and sit on your bench for two years. I knew what I could do. Whenever I step on any sports field, I'm the baddest SOB on the field. I think a week and a half later, Coach Dye comes down and he said, I'm going to be flat out honest with you. We don't have any running backs at all. And he said, I will give you every opportunity to be a starter in my backfield next season. And that's all it took. That's all it took. Well, the Alabama side is holding its breath. The Auburn side is roaring lustily here at Legion Field on third down and goal. Campbell puts it up. He's got it to Bo Jackson. Jackson is down just short of the goal line. He's a foot away. And so we had a fourth and one. 
and everybody in Legion Field, 80,000 plus, my mom and dad, everybody knows that it's going to be Bo over the top. Alabama. But I'm just thinking to myself for one time, come on, Coach Die, let it go to the other side. Our quarterback said, we coming behind your big ass. Go get him. Think about a freshman from Shamley, Georgia, starting left tackle, and they have the confidence to call a play to run right behind him. And it was one of those situations where you want to say, Coach, like, have you been watching the game? I knew that I was a seven-foot high jumper in high school. I was sure about that. Jackson. Play became ingrained in college football lore. Bo over the top. Bo goes up. And I think he kind of got another inch or two like that Superman cape that Herschel wears over there. Bo wore it for this one moment. I thought for years that he, when he went over the top, he went over the goal line. But he didn't go over the goal line until he started down. If you look at that picture down on the bottom, you'll see a 17-year-old kid, number 78, with his hand in a cast. This is what Coach Dye talked about, the hard work, determination. One day we're going to win. The Tigers had manifested everything about the Auburn creed that their coach so proudly believed in. They'd also beaten Alabama for the first time in a decade in a game that would signify a passing of the baton from the wily old Bryant to the fearless young die. It broke the drought, and it was a cleansing. And all of a sudden, a little shower comes through off in the distance that cleanses the air. You can smell the rain, you know? And it just, just cleans, it breaks free. I was looking for my mom, because I'm the eighth of 10 kids. My mother raised us on two minimum wage jobs. She cleaned someone's house during the day and cleaned hotel rooms at night. She was just a maid. To look up in the stands and everybody was hugging her and kissing her and treating her like royalty. And that meant the world to me. So I loved that more than the game itself. Now a great pleasure to announce the winner of the 1982 Heisman Memorial Trophy from the University of Georgia, Herschel Walker. In his three seasons at Georgia, Herschel Walker ended up with almost 5,600 rushing yards and 57 touchdowns. A lot of people think this world is made of individuals. Well, life is a team, life is a group, everything works together. One Saturday after a game, you know, I've been in the locker room forever and everybody wait for me. And then I have the state troopers that helped me to get across the parking lot. There was an old gentleman trying to get up to me, a white gentleman trying to get up to me. And, and the police were keeping it back. And I said, no, 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 let him come up, let him come up. And all of this guy came up, you know, he didn't come up with nothing, many signs. He grabbed my hand and shook my hand and looked at me in the eyes. And he's Herschel. He said, you know what, son? He says, I was one of the biggest Klansmen in the state of Georgia. 
said, he said, you've changed me. And he turned and walked off. That's all he said. Bear Bryant was 69, but seemed much older. Years of smoking and drinking had left their effect. There comes a time in every profession when you need to hang it up. At that time, it's come for me as head football coach at the University of Alabama. He told a reporter a month earlier after a loss, I just can't coach him anymore. And then looked off for what seemed like an eternity, as if he couldn't believe what he'd just heard himself say. But so it was on December 29th, 1982, Bear Bryant coached his last game in Memphis, Tennessee, against Illinois in the Liberty Bowl. That was a very emotional game for me. My last game, Coach Bryant last game, I wasn't a verbal leader. I was more of a just, I was a quiet leader. But before the Liberty Bowl, I just had this prompting to get up and say something. So I raised my hand. I said, Coach, can I say something? He said, he nodded, yeah. And I, I got up, and the words just started flowing. I didn't, I, this was, didn't prepare any of this. And, uh, but there was a deep appreciation. And I said, Coach, I just want to thank you for uh, the opportunities that you gave here at the University of Alabama. I said, I came here four years ago as an 18-year-old boy. I'm leaving tonight as a 22-year-old man. And I said, there's no way we're going to lose this game tonight. While his coach paced the sidelines one more time that night in Memphis, Jeremiah Castile had one of the best games of his career. Intercepted by Alabama, Jeremiah Castile. One final thank you, perhaps, for just how far his time at Alabama had carried him. I come from two parents with a fourth grade education with alcoholism and domestic violence. I've got a two-inch scar on my right arm here where my mother cut me intoxicated one day with a knife. What you're going through, that's what helps forges you and makes you. My vision for uh, my life came out of the alcoholism. I focused on getting an education. On my signing day, I didn't sign at home. My father was in the hospital, and my mother was just wasted. <laughs> so I called him, I told him, I said, hey, we can't, we can't sign my scholarship here. We gotta, we gotta find a place. He's going for the bomb. It is intercepted. The third interception of the night for Jeremiah Castile. Four, three, two, one. Paul Bear Bryant goes out a winner in his final game. 21-15. I got the MVP trophy. So we are up on the podium, and uh, the commentator was congratulating Coach Bryant on his football career. He took his arm and put it around me. 
He said, all my career is because of great men like this. He had a heart for people, a love for people. I believed he loved me from the first uh, meeting that I had with him, and he cared about each and every player. When I got drafted in 1983 by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I put my mother in a rehab. That was the first thing I did with my signing bonus. Took her to a local hospital there in Phoenix City, and 30 days later, she walked out sober. And this past January, we just celebrated 33 years of sobriety. Jeremiah Castile was one of countless players who'd forever look to Bryant as a formative pillar of their lives. And all of them, along with the entire state of Alabama, would be stunned when the news broke just four weeks after his last game. I was in my fifth grade class, and my teacher, Miss Prescott, she came into the door, and she's just bawling, crying, so we say in the South, and um, just tears, and I'm like, gosh, somebody in her family's passed away. Announcement came over, the principal said, you know, sad news. Coach Bryant's passed away, and every kid in that room and all throughout the school was crying. At 12.24 p.m. today, Coach Paul W. Bear Bryant had a sudden cardiopulmonary arrest. All measures were unsuccessful, and he was pronounced dead at 1.30 p.m. I remember that just like yesterday. He was a he was a wonderful human being. You didn't think of Coach Bryant passing away. He just had that aura about him. He ain't gonna ever, he's not gonna ever die. He's a, just a strong man. It was just hard for me to believe. I just never pictured him anywhere but the head football coach at the University of Alabama. Everybody came, and nobody knew what to do when they got here. You know, it's how that it can be. At my house, we had the Sugar Bowl people, the Cotton Bowl people, reporters. You know, people just didn't know where to go. And, and all we did, of course, was sit around and drink and tell stories we all knew. Broke my heart. Sure did. You couldn't get in the church. They were standing on the steps. And I remember uh, coming outside and seeing all the people. And it was like the whole place. Tuscaloosa had, I mean, shut down. It was like, you know where you were when Kennedy was shot and everybody mourned him? Well, this was like Coach Bryant, man. It was like, you know, the whole state shut down. I got a call to be a pallbearer. It was a tremendous honor, but really I feel like that's the greatest honor I've received in my life, to be one of eight men that carried his body. It was one of the most surreal 
days of my life. I was given the assignment of covering the funeral and did what any young fearless reporter would do. I just butted right in and got in the procession. Yeah, I remember as a young kid watching the Kennedy funeral and later the funerals of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. And then in the world that I lived in, it was, it was on that same level. And tears began pouring down my cheeks. It was, it was such an emotional event. And I'm looking at these people as we're riding and they're crying. And so it, it was telling me, look at the impact. He impacted people that really didn't know him. Is amazing. <laughs> All over. <laughs> I'm sorry. All the overpasses were just full of people. Signs. I've never seen anything like it. Bryant was a, was a symbol for, for America itself. He represented striving. He represented old-time values. I mean, he grew up in poverty with these feelings of insecurity. And by the end of his life, he becomes a, a confirmation of the very idea of America. All these years later, it's a lonely sight. Just a small plaque marking the spot of a man who was larger than life. My God, what a man. I mean, he was, he was just a tough... He was just a tough guy. He just—he loved his players, and man, we loved him too. I tell you, sorry. I don't know that I held a grudge against Bear Bryant, but he whipped our butt, and you get tired of getting your butt whipped. I was young. I was reactionary, and as the Bible says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. I have great respect for Coach Bryant now. At one point in my life, I couldn't stand him, but now I miss him. As the 1983 season dawned in the wake of Bryant's passing, 42-year-old Ray Perkins began the impossible task of stepping into shoes simply too big for any one man to fill. Still, Perkins came from the right pedigree. A former star receiver who'd played on the Bears' national championship teams of 1964 and 65, as well as the undefeated 1966 squad. Perkins came to Alabama from the New York Giants, and he had the intestinal fortitude and the intelligence to know he had to change things, and he did it immediately, he changed the offense. He changed uh, the soft drink, he changed the potato chip company on the television show, he changed the announcer. And then there was maybe the most symbolic change, removing the Bryant Tower 
from the practice field. It was all part of trying to escape a massive shadow, even as Perkins also had to contend with the ascendant Auburn, Pat Dye, and their sensational star running back. 83 would be Dye's third season on the Plains, and there was ample hope and optimism until tragedy struck in the team's summer camp when fullback Greg Pratt went down. I still get choked up to this day thinking about Greg and what, what could have been. I think about him. I think about him a lot. You feel you have this game under control now? Well, I don't think so, because BC has a good pass game. Wonderful guy. Would do anything for you. He shares pizza with you. <laughs> when he wasn't supposed to be eating pizza, so he'd give us a piece so we wouldn't squeal on it. This is just a regular summer practice. It's 90 degrees outside. I know we were running long distances. He went down at the end of that run. He walked back to the locker room and was taking a shower and collapsed in the shower. Literally, he starts hyperventilating. His skin started changing colors, and the next thing you know, the ambulance comes. Man, this doesn't seem real. The official cause of death was heat exhaustion. And that hit us hard. We lost a family member. I've already spoke with our squad. It's just a very sad time for all of us. The team was close, but I feel like we actually got closer for that season. We need to do this for Greg. We need to come together. And we thought that we were special. We were getting ready to go face to face, didn't care who you were, that we were ready. Luckenor in the backfield. McIver on the play action. It's caught. He's going to stroll in if King doesn't catch him, and he can't. But a loss to a strong Texas team in the second game of the season would leave the Tigers with a one-and-one one record. You have a little gut check now. See how much courage you got. Get back up off the ground. Get your head up. Texas humbled us in a huge way. Coach Dye thought we were too relaxed, but that was the very last day he had allowed uh, guys just laughing and joking. From the rest of that period of time, he was talking about winning. Bo Jackson has done it for Auburn. Jackson, he's loose. They'll never get him. That looked like man against boys. He cut back against the grain and went 80 yards on Florida. Jackson looks for a run, hit from behind, got away. At the 25, he's in a foot race at the 20. Touchdown, Auburn! You don't go 80 yards on Florida. It just doesn't happen. But if you're Bo Jackson, it can happen. The great football teams improve when you win. They're not satisfied with their performances. And then you have to go into Athens. You know, there's no cakewalk when you're going to Athens. There's a lot of dogs over there that want to bite you. Navigating a brutal regular season schedule, the Tigers took a seven-game win streak into their clash with number four Georgia with the SEC title at stake. 
Sugar! Auburn got by the Bulldogs, 13 to 7. And then came the Iron Bowl at Legion Field. And it wasn't like Bama had dropped much. So Bama is Bama. Andy Campbell gives to Bo Jackson. Jackson's on his way. Goodbye. And so in their first meeting, that die has bested Ray Perkins. Victory over Alabama kept the Tigers at number three in the polls and gave them a chance at the national championship. And it all seemed to line up in the Orange Bowl. Number five Miami, led by Bear Bryant's old protege, Howard Schnellenberger, stunned number one Nebraska. This is for the national championship for Nebraska. Though that classic still served as a stark contrast to Auburn's dull 9-7 win over Michigan in the Sugar Bowl. We just heard that Miami beat Nebraska, and so we're leaving the field like, number one, we did it. We thought for sure that we had won the national championship. We're national champs. We all go out and celebrate. Everybody has a great time. And so the next day, while we're driving back, from New Orleans. I fall asleep in the back seat of my buddy's car. He wakes me up and says, hey, they're, they're about to make the announcement. The votes are in. I'll never forget, it said, the 1983 national champions have been named, and it's the Miami Hurricanes. I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. There was shock, but it was still Auburn, and Auburn did not have uh, the gravitas. That number three ranking does not sit well with the Auburn faithful, including Tiger coach Pat Dye. We played the toughest schedule in the nation. The toughest. Auburn got screwed. I, I think it was just more beauty contest and like you know, typical sports rider fashion, we just reacted to what the last thing we saw was. If number one loses, if number two loses, then who should win the national championship? Number three, right? Didn't happen like that. Of all the battles for the golden egg over more than a century of football, there may have been none with a finish more mystical than 1983 when Mississippi State gave up a big lead late to Ole Miss. Only to look poised to steal the victory with a field goal. But then the wind had its say. This is Mississippi version of the immaculate deflection. Artie Cosby will attempt a 27-yard field goal. Waiting for the snap. There it is. It is placed down. There's the kick. It turns. It turns. It is no good. And the kick went up. It just fell down. He was plenty high and plenty long. It may have been the first field goal cheered by both teams. First it was good, and then it was no good. One of the greatest games ever played in the long history of Ole Miss and Mississippi State. That sent Ole Miss to a bowl game. Sending you an invitation to play the Air Force Academy. Yeah!
To understand what was happening with the SEC uh, in the 80s, you really have to look at the television situation. A situation that was transformed by a ruling that changed the behind-the-scenes power structure of the business of college football. It all turned on a June morning in 1984 when the Supreme Court basically put the NCAA out of the television business and uh, let the SEC and the other conferences fend for themselves, go out and sell whatever deals they wanted to. Just like that, new packages cropped up all along the burgeoning cable television landscape. It used to be at ABC Sports, we were the only game in town. Now, in the 80s, we started to see the expansion in the locker room of more people asking for more time from the athletes. You know, they're all national games, but everybody's fighting for ratings. That's the beginning of the modern era of college football. Everything seemed to get bigger, including the profile of teams' top stars. There was Reggie White at Tennessee, a force in the SEC before he became the Minister of Defense in the NFL. Emmett Smith, who, like he did in high school in the pros, rewrote the record book at Florida. Cornelius Bennett and Derek Thomas, who turned Alabama into the SEC's linebacker U. This is a sense of pride for a community. This is a sense of value to cheer loudly, to have your daughter be a cheerleader, to have your son be on the team. It became good old-fashioned hate between alumni, between students, between athletic departments, because there was big money on the line. So winning on a Saturday afternoon became life and death. The importance of Bo Jackson's four years at Auburn would be hard to overstate. In 1985, as a senior, Bo won the Heisman four and a half years after Pat Dye promised him an opportunity. Coach Dye planted a seed of courage, a seed of knowledge, a seed of trust. He planted that in us. And we, as players, had to nurture that to make it grow. When I came to Auburn, I was an immature, rarely speakable, stuttering teenage boy. And when I left Auburn in 85, four years later, I had blossomed. He had helped nurture me into a young, respectable man that would sit down and talk to anybody now and not even worry about his speech impediment. Auburn and Alabama would continue to bicker as their rivalry escalated through the 1980s. Here comes the They're wearing white. They're the visitor this year. The, the games, always the culmination of a year of anticipation, were consistently close. Richardson's got it, he's got to get out of bounds, and he does. Here comes Van Tippen. Two yards, the kick is up, and it's good! He made it! It was perhaps the ultimate validation 
that Pat Dye had put the Tigers firmly on equal footing with the Tide. It's Laurie Toman carrying the ball. Good cut. Touchdown, Auburn. Meanwhile, in 1986, after four seasons, Ray Perkins left Alabama to return to the pros. Ray Perkins was just an arrogant guy who thought he knew everything. And he, in the process, managed to literally tick off pretty much every Alabama fan in the state. He'd averaged only eight wins a season, and most importantly, hadn't come close to a national championship. And Pat died. KG boy from South Georgia who knew Bear Bryant better than Ray Perkins, took the mantle from Bryant. My old boss used to say if you wanted to talk Alabama football under Perkins, you had to go to Auburn. Bill Curry, an outsider from Georgia Tech, would be hired as Perkins' replacement. When I first got to Alabama, there was a prominent attorney, and this is an Alabama guy. Alabama Law School graduate and a prominent attorney, he called for me to come see him. And he said, now, Bill, there's some things that you have to understand if you're going to do this job. In Reconstruction, the Southern white male was emasculated. His dignity was stripped because of the loss of the war and all the implications of that culture. Then along comes the Depression and the southern male is emasculated again. He's nothing but a poor dirt farmer down in South Alabama or North Georgia. Can't afford to feed his family. Now, here comes Alabama football. Late 50s, here comes Coach Bryant. Then Coach Bryant's little skinny guys start going up north and they start whipping those big Yankees. And after a while, he figures out that he needs him some big guys, so he gets some big guys, and he keeps right on whipping those Yankees. And then they decided that they needed some African-American guys, so he got him some, and he keeps right on whipping. Now, what do you think the Southern male psyche has experienced through this Alabama team? And it's a lot of people that have never been close to the Alabama campus, much less go to school there. And they love this team for all kinds of reasons. If you don't understand that, Bill, you're going to croak here. There's a tradition, only a few decades old, that's part of every home game played in Oxford, Mississippi each fall. When Ole Miss takes the field, they tap the bust of Chucky Mullins a tribute to the young man whose life forever changed here on October 28, 1989. One back in the backfield, three receivers wide right for Gromos. Back to throw in the pocket, plenty of time. Man wide open, it's Gaines, he's hit. Bumble! Gaines is going to recover. No, they say incomplete. Oh, I don't know about that one. Brad Gaines caught it at the two lineman, and he was plastered in the back. In fact, there's a rebel down that hit I did cover the game that day in Oxford. On that particular play, I watched Chucky the whole play, and he was at safety. He came up and made the tackle, and then, he, you know, he didn't move. Few people would remember the result of the game. With the crowd in stunned silence, Chucky Mullins was rushed to the hospital. After the game, 
Coach Brewer, he has tears in his eyes. And he said, he's never going to walk again. So what do you mean? He said, broke his neck. And he said, he almost died on that field. I felt like I, as a reporter, I had to get reaction from, from the guy he tackled. When I walked into the, the Vanderbilt dressing room, he said, by the way, have you heard anything about the guy that got, that got hurt? And I said, uh, yeah, he broke his neck and he's probably not going to walk again. And the entire Vanderbilt dressing room just stopped. And all their eyes came over toward me. And nobody was saying anything after that. I've never been in a place that was so somber. And this was a guy that none of them knew. And it was a, one of the toughest stories I've ever had to write. Chucky Mullins would keep fighting for his life for months after in a hospital bed, and then in rehabilitation as a quadriplegic, his courage inspiring millions. I can't give up, you know. It's just not my heart to give up. He'd even eventually resume classes at Ole Miss. But that, you know, that's the way he lived before the injury. He had to beg Brewer for that scholarship. Uh, Brewer kept telling him, you're not big enough, Chucky. And he said, just give me a chance, coach. He was hungry. He was persistent. He was tenacious. He was tough. He was Chucky. An outpouring of support would pay for Chucky's life expenses. The love from everybody in Mississippi, every school in Mississippi, I mean, they were passing buckets around at Mississippi State games, raising money for Chucky and his family. His courage and determination are unequal. Chucky Mullins would die in 1991 from complications of a blood clot but would leave behind a legacy remembered to this day. Jackie has given something to each of us, and we will remember. You know, even today, it's hard to go anywhere in Mississippi where people don't know what 38 stands for. And you don't ever have to say his full name, you just say Chucky. I have this thing where every time I'm in Oxford, whether it's in season or out of season, that I have to drive by the football field. I get out, walk to the fence, look in, and you could see the spot where Chucky was injured, and just sort of remember. And I always will. It's just my way of never forgetting, never forgetting Chucky. Make a choice, young, very young age at birth. Either you go Bama or either you go over. To some degree, love of Auburn is partly induced by hatred of the University of Alabama. 
you have half the state of Auburn, half the state of Alabama. Uh, we get along 364 days a year. They throw parties outside Jordan-Hare Stadium on Saturdays throughout every fall. But in years when the Iron Bowls played here, the celebration, the passion, and the pride are truly unrivaled. It's not Ohio State, Michigan. It's next door neighbors. The competition and the brutal nature of that competition sometimes is unlike anything I've seen. Like siblings, every day, every minute, every waking hour. You got punt, bamba, punch, kick six, cam back. Help me out, guys. What do you got? Over the top. 1985, Auburn was forced to play its games in Birmingham. Somebody else can tell us where we played our home games. Somebody else had an influence on how we did business. The 89 game was really precipitated by something that happened in the mid-80s when Pat Dye, out of nowhere, said, we are moving the Iron Bowl out of Birmingham. And it was, it was a shot that no one saw coming. You can't do that. That's, that's blasphemous. For the 41 years prior, Auburn, Alabama had been, played, been played at a venue that served up all but a home game for the Tide, Legion Field in Birmingham. First time I saw Coach Bryant when I got back to Alabama. He said, well, I guess you won't take that game to Auburn. I said, we're going to take it to Auburn. He said, not as long as I'm coaching. I said, well, you ain't going to coach forever. He laughed. And uh, so well, we got a contract through 88. I said, we're going to play 89 in Auburn. Collegian Field was, was an Alabama place. And the story goes that the Auburn president, he was escorted to his box seat on the 50-yard line, and the usher that took him there was wearing a roll-tied button <laughs> on the Auburn home game. Of course Alabama should play at Auburn, but they were never going to do it. So when that game came here in 89, the yoke of oppression was lifted. That sounds like an overstatement, but that's how it felt. The fervor of those Auburn fans was so emotional and was at such a fever pitch that I, I was, I sort of backed away. It was nerve wracking even on the bus coming into the stadium. It was so thick that the bus was creeping along and they were pushing the bus and rocking the bus. The Tiger Walk coming through that. We were single file that day. It was a feeling like there's no way we can lose this game. Look at our fans. Mama's holding little babies up. I mean, they're three weeks old, holding them up for you to touch. Grandmamas and granddaddies, you walk by and you look and they bang tears running down their cheeks. When you looked in their eyes, it looked like the people coming when they took down the Berlin Wall. 
Over the people made a journey that day they thought they would never, ever make. You can only enter the promised land for the first time once, mm -hmm. that this was what it felt like. We were number two in the country, undefeated. If we win that day, we're gonna play for a national title. It was the opportunity to move past Coach Bryant to establish that, hey, Alabama can be at the top of the football world post-Bryant. We had a statement to make on our home turf. If you said you would never do it, here you are. We're not gonna let Auburn down. The stakes only amplified the intensity. Curry and Alabama looking to continue their perfect season and a march to a national championship game. I remember every play, every detail, every minute, every second. I didn't think there was a way in the world that they could beat us in that game. Auburn came into the game eight and two, but playing their best football of the season not to mention riding a three-game Iron Bowl win streak. We were the best team, and I knew we were the best team. Reggie Slack needing five yards on third down. He's gonna throw long to Alexander Wright. Oh, great catch over the shoulder inside the 10. There were a couple of pivotal moments. Touchdown, Auburn! I called a fake field goal. 23-yard fake attempt, rolling out as the holder. He's in a lot of trouble, throws a pass in the end zone. Is it top? No, broken up incomplete. We didn't execute it properly, and I think the game turned on that. The fans and atmosphere, they changed that game. When we were trying to make those audibles, we couldn't hear anything. The quarterback, when he would turn around, it, it literally looked like he was. And so our ability to be a fluid offense totally went out the window. Second and 10, man is open, it's Boston. He cuts back to the middle. Here comes McCants after him, and McCants got him by the foot. Auburn never trailed, dominated the game. Darryl Williams. It was the perfect day if you're an Auburn Tiger. I feel like our guys played their guts out. If they had a, a better head coach, they would have won it. It was extremely painful. You just don't recover from that. I grew up around here. I was recruited by Auburn and I knew about enough about what this game meant in their culture. I did understand that it was a cataclysmic moment. You could see in Coach Dye the, uh, the sense of uh, accomplishment, the bliss and the excitement and the happiness. It was like a moment of arrival. First of all, I want to make a presentation. I want to present Coach Dow with the game ball. Yeah. Yeah. 
Every one of you players, I mean, ain't no way, ain't no way, for, I, ain't, I ain't smart enough to tell you how I feel about you. You sunk some deep roots in the ground here tonight, men. You sunk some deep roots in the ground. Tonight, I, I could, I'm going to tell you something now. Sure, I'd like to be 12, 11 and old and, you know, no, but I'm going to tell you something. I wouldn't swap this year for any year that I've been at Auburn. I wouldn't swap it, men, because I've watched you struggle and I've watched you wrestle with them angels, and, 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 but I watched you grow up and become men. I watched you become men. Back in Tuscaloosa, the shadow of Bear Bryant still loomed large. And if a 10-win season sounds like a success, none of that mattered for Bill Curry without beating Auburn. Bill won 26 games in three years. He did very well, but the biggest games, the biggest moments, you know, Alabama was not ready. And there's no crime in that, there's no shame in that, unless you're an Alabama fan that's lost to Auburn three years in a row. I had two years remaining on the contract that I had, but the more I prayed about it, I determined that my presence on that campus was a deterrent. I was the problem. I became obsessive. I went to the office at 5 a.m. and stayed however long I had to, and that wasn't fair to my family at all, and I'm deeply sorry for it, but that's the only way I knew to compete. So all that stuff that was flying around, I provided the pressure. I was the pressure. I told the team the last time I met with them, you have an obligation. First, to graduate. If you don't graduate, you know I'm gonna to come to your house. I will find you if you don't graduate. Second, win the national championship, because that's what Alabama football is about. And as the 1980s came to a close, it had been another decade of transformation in the SEC. But revolution would soon be in the air. It would begin in Gainesville and spread throughout the league and beyond. Takes the ball! Takes the ball away from him! And with a new commissioner, new teams, new rivalries. God continues to smile on the Gators. New stars and a new championship game. The Southeastern Conference was set for change and growth that would once again mirror a new chapter of history in the South itself.